everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 116. So glad you could join us on this special night. Um, it's an unusual episode on an unusual time. It is uh, Halloween tomorrow, and uh, we are celebrating with a Halloween episode, focusing sort of on spooky stories and uh, have a little different bumper music there. That was uh, Luck Witch by Audio Hurt to uh, start off the show. Um, and tonight's guest is Ernest Hilbert, who has a wonderful book full of creepiness. In addition, it's a very uh, rich, complicated book, but there are a lot of um, creepy Halloween-ish themes going on. So we'll talk to him in just a moment. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you love poetry too, so please do make sure you click the like button and subscribe and all that good stuff, and uh, we will um, spread around the internet that way. So make sure you help us out that way. That's all we ask, and uh, we hope you do that now. And we have, uh, I wasn't planning on doing any, um, any Poets Respond this week. But the poem that we chose for Sunday actually happens to be a Halloween poem. It's by Henry Crawford, who um, I see in the chat there. But uh, the poem is um, This Weekend, uh, what's it called? It's As We Were Saying Goodbye. And uh, I'll read Henry's uh, note here. Uh, This weekend being the opening of the Glasgow Climate Change Conference as well as Halloween, I wrote a poem about the chaos surrounding climate change using the metaphor of a haunted house. So that is going to be tomorrow's poem, and we'll preview it right now. Um, and here we go. This is, uh, this is Henry Crawford's poem. As we were saying goodnight, someone noticed the television left on in one of the rooms, so a couple of guys headed upstairs, and it was reassuring to know that it was under control. But noises kept coming down the hallways, and the floors began groaning with the feet of searching people turning on lights and looking into rooms and sometimes shouting, I've got it! which some people believed, while others stayed more skeptical, patting the walls and opening doors, like the young woman who discovered a bathtub she couldn't stop overflowing, or the lawyer who came upon a stove with lit burners and an oven leaking gas, and they twisted the knobs right and left to no effect as the air got thicker and the smell of distant smoke even as we climbed to higher flights where we stumbled upon a floor of mousetraps so dense you couldn't breathe without setting them off. So we stood frozen together, and I bid good night to Jim and Martha Winkler, who were lost in thought as they considered the situation under the remorseful gaze of a wall-mounted moose. As one by one the lights went dark, and the glint dimmed in the glass eye of a stuffed monkey as the moon escaped the only window. That is Henry Crawford's poem. It was going to be tomorrow's featured poem, as we were saying goodnight about um, the climate change crisis and the way the earth kind of does feel like a haunted house a little bit uh, these days, given all that's going on with the environment. And uh, now let's just jump right to our featured guest. Um, Ernest Hilbert, um, like I mentioned, has this wonderful book called Caligulan, which I'll put on screen right here. Um, it's not his most recent book. I think it's his second to last book, Caligulan, here. Um, but it's full of really great Halloween-type imagery and scenes. And um, he's a horror fan as well as a poet and does so much more. So I thought it would be a great guest to have for this week. And um, Ernest Hilbert's debut poetry collection, 60 Sonnets, was described by X.J. Kennedy as maybe the most arresting sequence we have, um, have had since John Berryman checked out of America. His other books include All of You on the Good Earth, Caligulan, uh, which was selected as the winner of the 2017 Poets Prize, the last one and the last one out, 
Um, Hilbert currently keeps a heavily encrypted dark web poetry site called Caxetus. I don't know how you say that. You'll have to ask him. And a more public website to promote emerging poets called Everse Radio. Hilbert graduated with a doctorate in English, language, and literature from Oxford University, where he edited the Oxford Quarterly. Um, he later served as poetry editor of Random House Magazine's Bold Type in New York City and editor of uh, Contemporary Poetry Review, published by the American Poetry Fund in Washington, D.C. He works as an antiquarian book dealer in Philadelphia, where he lives with his wife, keeper of the Mediterranean section at the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, and their son, Ian. And here he is, Ernest Gilbert. Hey, Ernest, great to see you. Hi, uh, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, you know, uh, we're, Halloween is a big holiday in this house, and it's it's com- decorated uh, every inch in some kind <laughs> of spooky thing. And uh, we love the music and everything. And, and just this early evening today, we sought out the Cave of Kelpius, which we had heard of but never been able to find. And that is a, a dark, wet cave in a steep heavily forested hillside in philadelphia it's outside of philadelphia uh-huh. yeah uh-huh. um the, it's a place where where johannes kelpius in the 18th century journeyed from transylvania to america to live in the cave and uh, await the end of the world and he uh, gathered around him this utopian community um, that included uh, someone who painted the first oil painting in North America, things like this. Um, and so we found it, and my son was, is five years old and was very brave in stepping in while we lit it up with our iPhone lights. Um, so we just got we were just got back from that. I mean, then we were wandering these steep trails, and it got overcast, and then we realized we were losing the natural light. The sun was going down, and we were a little lost, and he was getting tired. Any parent has probably uh, been through something like this. And then we were, it was getting really spooky. And then I suddenly thought, oh, no, I have to get home to do a special Halloween (laughs) podcast for Rattlecast. Let's pick it up, people. Let's move. So we did. Um, And so we got back. Um, So I can start, I can read a poem if you like. Yeah, we usually start with a poem. And I think the first one we had was House on the Hill, which is a perfect start for this show. Right. So this is this one is not actually published. It's not in a book uh, or even in a magazine yet. I've only read it live once before, and that was a week ago. Uh, so, you know, I've always been taken with the idea, like haunted houses are a staple of horror, ghost stories, what have you. And uh, one of the great ones, of course, is Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, which has been made into five or six movies of varying quality. And uh, in Stephen King's book, Dance Macabre, he talks about how important that book was for him uh, by imparting to him the notion that there can be a bad place just a not a monster per se or a villain just a place that feels as though something is wrong and he really worked that in you know, uh, the shining pet cemetery a number of different ones and uh, and i like that notion as well that visiting a place where it feels as if something's wrong um, you know one of our great ghost story writers i think the greatest american ghost story writer is edith warden hmm. and people sometimes raise an eyebrow when i say that and they yeah, say she's not did. scary <laughs> yeah well they always say well she's not scary she she writes about social mores and class and things like that no actually she has so many that um 
Penguin Classics has a standalone. I, I don't. I have it around here somewhere of just her ghost stories, and I highly recommend them. They're very, very good. I'm um, reading a few different ones. Uh, this is uh, Morgenstrom and Others by Hugh Cave, a very rare book. If you find this and it's under $500, get it. Um, it's really rare, but it's the, the, the title story is, to me, possibly the most frightening uh, haunted house story ever written. Um, but anyway, so this is called um, House on the Hill. But still it stands, oddly at angles to earth. The August heavy sky is blue above, air vile with ragweed, black flies, and scorched woods. Something is wrong. The wet wind laps like waves along the once great house. Locusts simmer in thick moats of meadow grass. A highway sighs far off beyond abandoned fields. We're alone here. Hellish humidity eases ancestral smells from the wet cellar. Innumerable rains have run down the eaves. The finial jabs low-ceilinged clouds like a spear. The empty halls wait for footsteps. Something happened here. Someone did something. The gable and balcony are packed thick with black mulch and stains of last year's blown leaves. White paint that must once have gleamed in sun has crackled to ash on dentals and frieze. The gable sheds shingles like an ancient fish. The long balustrades badly balanced and in stillness or storm will soon fall away. Glass is gone from the windows Sluggish gusts go through the chambers like blood through a heart. You could almost hear it. The pit out back was dug to burn garbage Sunday evenings, leaving small bones, curious shapes, bits of glass. Something happened here. That's why we're here. Someone survived and settled down to forget. Other things happened too. They always do. Mornings in October, a consoling aroma of coffee lingered in these rooms. Pies were baked and peach preserves spread on toast. In January's icy dawns, maple smoke mixed with frost that slipped through cracks. Someone bundled a child and carried her up creaking stairs to bed. In springtime, someone shampooed a dog that splattered the porch with wild patterns of warm drops. But someone did something. They always do. You can feel it, can't you? Standing here with me. 
You don't know why, but I know you do. It's here, in this heavy air. It's in there. It's in the sour fieldstone foundations and the peeling paper, the rotting plaster. You don't know why, but I know you do. Excellent. That was a new poem. That was House on the Hill by Ernest Hilbert. Um, so, Ernest, what is your, you know, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, horror, the use of horror in poetry or the use of just sort of genre in general? Because um, it feels to me like it's um, just very closely related in all the same ways that we, you know, all the same sort of purposes that poetry or any other literary art, you know, makes um, or, or employed there. And um, and yet it feels sort of like a genre like people put off to the side. So so what do you think that the role of, um, of you know, we talked to um, um, Debbie Kolaji recently, for, who is with the Psyche or um, Science Poetry, Science Fiction Poetry Association. And uh, we've talked to other people from there, too. And um, I just I always wonder why, um, you know, poems in genre, they're so pleasurable and fun. Like, why don't we write more of them? And why? Why is it sort of put off to the side usually? Well, there's there's uh, a few things. Uh, so for one thing, they're not, it's not as put off to the side as it once was. A lot of literary writers have been writing uh, using genre. Uh, you know, The Road by Cormac McCarthy is a post-apocalyptic novel. Um, you know, people have been writing zombie stories and all sorts of things, and they and they um, they lay claim to some higher literary purpose, and perhaps that's true in the style of the prose, or they relate it politically or socially in other ways. But it is starting to get recognized and used by uh, by writers. Um, the other thing is that's how I started out. You know, when I was in high school, I read all sorts of things, but I was definitely reading a lot of horror. There's mm -hmm. no question about that. When I first started writing and publishing, I was 19. And the magazines, even for poetry that I was appearing in, were genre magazines. And so my first publication was in a science fiction magazine called, uh, this was before the internet, so these were all print magazines that came in the mail. And it was called Figment, a magazine of uh, speculative fiction. And I wrote a poem that they put on the back page um, called Crossings, I think, about deep space travel. And it was sort of horrific. They were running out of oxygen, you know. Uh, so, and then I would do things like um, uh, I was also writing short stories, and I would mix things. I say, well, this is in space, but it's also a werewolf story on a space station, you know, things like this. So, I was publishing short stories and poetry, and, and things like vampire anthologies. There was one called Children of the Night, I think that you know was an anthology, and I had some uh, some vampire poems. So, from the very beginning, I did that, and then I got away from that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. uh, but not for any particular reason. And then uh, I've sort of mellowed into my middle age of sort of uh, accepting things that I've always enjoyed, like horror, heavy metal. You know, these things can be used to great profit in, uh, so to speak, in artistic profit in, in, in poetry. So, yes, I think it's to be encouraged. And I think it, um, uh, you know, I mean, Jonathan Swift was using science fiction when he was writing his uh, great satire, uh, Gulliver's Travels. There's a city that floats with magnets, you know. Um, there was science fiction in the, uh, the, in the Roman era of literature, of uh, space travel and intergalactic wars. It's not actually very new. And then 
something like Frankenstein, which is a great horror novel. It's also a great speculative fiction type novel, science fiction. Um, it's an extremely important book, uh, but it's not thought of as genre. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's it's considered great literature. So where do you draw the line? I don't know, but I, I think you're right that I do. One of the reasons you have me here right now is because I do like to absorb some of these uh, sort of images, approaches. Uh, the 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 great thing that ghost stories or horror does, I think, uh, or those things do, is to create a sense of atmosphere. It's one of the reasons the short story is so much more effective with ghosts than with novels, I think. Uh, you don't have to sustain subplots and things like this and many characters. In 10 pages, you can create a, a an emotional state, an atmosphere that just is terrifying and leaves you unsettled. It's hard to maintain that. So poetry is also, uh, in its compactness and uh, in the lyric poetry form, it's, it's brevity capable of creating the, the a terrifying or unsettling atmosphere. And, and many of the poems in Caligulan were purposefully devoted to trying to ca capture that sort of thing. Yeah, the, uh, the really, I, I consider this book like um, an atmospheric book, and it uses the atmospheres that you build. Like there's these little little scenes that have a really sort of creepy atmosphere, but then you touch on a whole bunch of other topics. And, you know, just like another book of poetry would, um, you know, like what the poems are actually about are very human, like going through life phases and things like that. But then, you know, told through the lens of um, these atmospheres. Um, do you want? Do you want to read a, a poem from there just to to start? Uh, so I can do so that. People can have a feel for that. I also want to mention one one more thing before I move on. You know, I wrote the introduction to an anthology uh, called Classic Tales of Horror from Canterbury Classics, and these were uh, mostly nineteenth century, but also some early twentieth century short stories. And it's very thick. You know, it's this sort of massive six hundred page thing. I wrote a very long, about 10,000, deeply considered like 10,000 word introduction because it's something I really cared about and I wanted to talk about it. The one thing worth noting is that there is one poem in the book and you might be able to guess what the poem is um, because it's something that everyone knows, uh, which is, you know, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, uh, which is in that sort of entrancing trochaic octameter um, you know, and it's, it's just like a hypnotizing poem, but it, I didn't choose the contents. Someone else, the publisher did. I thought it was interesting that there was one poem included, but when I used to read, um, there was a series back in the late eighties, early nineties called, uh, year's best horror, I think America's best horror, something like that. It was mass market paperbacks. They would include two or three horror poems in each issue which really had a huge impact on me back then when i was 18 or 19 years old and reading a lot of that stuff so um so it, it is something that's been going on for a while uh you know uh what is the first poem i was going to read from is uh, uh apparition uh, at moss apparition Hane, at moss, moss han moss han yeah there it is so this is in a place called black moshannon it's uh deep in central pennsylvania sort of a sandstone depression. It's a giant geological feature uh, that is a swamp. And it's very remote. You, you won't get cell service there even now. Um, and we were, and we, there's the, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s built cabins there that they call rustic cabins, which means it doesn't have uh, running water or a bathroom. And you can rent these from the government 
still for, you know, $30 a night or something like that. And there's a bathroom up the hill you can use. So we were at one of these when I wrote this. And it was at night and I had this fire and you're looking up at the way the fire is burning things below and it's lighting the trees. And then above that, you have the moon with these sort of clouds, very much a gothic image. You know, something you would see in a Caspar David Friedrich painting or something like that. So this is Apparition at Moss Ham. Ospreys orbit here, ruling as lords their drowned domains. We row watercourses through miles of lily pads, hordes of hemlock, spruce groves, and grim fortresses of alder swamp. Millions of years flood this place, where salamanders slide in mud. Our Depression-era log cabin warms when we return in rain. As the storm passes, we stir fire from damp wood. It squirms and thirsts in muggy air, struggles up and catches barks. The pit smokes. A winding helix of sparks climbs when a wet log pops and bursts its musty treasure of grubs to the furnace. Above, a colonnade of oak glows and forms like candles on cathedral triforia. Higher, a cloud, like a skull, with a grin too mild to scare masks the moon. It shears apart in light to frost, feather, fin, a thing that never slows and always nears. That was Apparition at Moss Hain <laughs> um, from Caligulan. Um, and, and it's just a great example of, of the way the book moves. I'm, I'm wondering how, you know, we all tried for the open lines later. A lot of people, and myself included, tried to write a spooky kind of poem for Halloween. And um, how do you approach a poem, you know, because this atmospheric mood that you set up, and the, 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 there's very uh, a cinematic kind of feel, too, to the way the poems move. How do you approach writing a poem like that? Like, where, where's the, um, where does the idea come from, and, and how do you get that going on paper in the way that you want to build this mood up sort of layer by layer, line by line? Well, it's, 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 uh, it's very much a state of mind, an emotional stance that is matched to some sort of physical condition, a place, an image. Um, when T.S. Eliot was writing in The Sacred Wood about Hamlet, he talked about an objective correlative in which an emotional state could be captured and relayed to a reader through a sequence of images or action. And so that's sort of in my mind. And, and it's I do a lot just by feel. I mean, it, it can be shaped in the process. And I do write very often, not always, but often in meter and rhyme. And so the shape has to feel natural as well and come to me in my ear long before I start writing it down. It has to have a sound. Um, and once it has the sound that goes with that feeling and that image, and it's also the way photographers or maybe a cinematographer is just alert to something. So, you know, you're seeing everything, it's white noise, there's, there's just images and images and spaces, and then suddenly you see you alight on the one 
you're like, whoa, that's great. And they take the camera and take a picture. Now, why did they select that one angle through the trees, that one room in a certain light? It's no different as a poet. You just have to be receptive, or in my own case, receptive to it. So it's it's maybe it's always there, and I just have to be in the right place at the right time, in the right mental state, in the right emotional state. You have to be a little raw, a little worried, a little, you know, if you're writing a dark poem. Uh, I also write poems of joy and happiness because those wash over me and hit me too. Much more since the birth of my son, I will say, than before. This this book came out when my wife was, uh, was pregnant with Ian. Um, and so this was a dark book also because it was just a dark time in general. Uh, everything was so fraught. And we were leading into a lot of years of just uh, things feeling out of joint and, and vaguely frightening and uncertain. Um, but the book that follows this last one out, while it has its share of uh, heavy stuff, you know, uh, also has a lot more happiness in it. So to answer your question, it's just I, I, I have to be in the right mood and have the right thing hit me. And when it all comes together with, with the right images, um, it can work. You know, in the next poem I'm going to read, I tried to have some dark stuff, but also some humor. Because something about uh, Halloween and about horror is there's a, a hugely corny aspect of it very often. You know, when you, when you look at B-movie horror or just all the sort of uh, funny music that gets played around Halloween. Uh, there is a humorous side to to all of it as well, uh, which I try to do in Monster Mania Con 44. Do you want to read that now? Sure. Okay. This is not in the book. Uh, this is uh, the, the two poems outside of Caligulan that I'll be reading. This is the other one are slated for a book I'm working on called Storm Swimmer, which has a chapter. Each chapter is six poems. There is a chapter that is all horror-related poems. This is from that, and it's called Monster Mania Con 44. This is uh, that, that the con refers to convention. This is a, an annual convention. I think it might take place in a sort of go on tour uh, and appear in a few different cities, and you have... People there to get things like autographs, a lot of um, cosplay and dress up. People seem to take a – this is beyond Halloween dress up. I mean this is – it usually takes place in the early summer, but it's, the costumes are perfect where you really think you're seeing the characters from the movies. It's a little unsettling actually how good the costumes are. And they're there to get um, you know, a signature from someone like – I think one of the rarest of the people who played Jason Voorhees from the Friday the 13th movies – in Friday the 13th Part 2, before this is before there was a hockey mask. He wore a, a sack, like a grain sack of some kind. His signature is the hardest one to get of all the Jasons. So if he's there, it's a big deal. And people stand in line in this. And there's also this um, dissonance of like all this horror, but it's taking place in this hotel that is designed for luxury and comfort. And, uh, you know, for fun. So anyway, I'll, I'll read the poem. Uh, hopefully it'll speak for itself. It's called Monster Mania Con 44. They're here where they feel safe for once. The plush lobby of the Crown Plaza Hotel. Zombies are common. Girls and gray-haired men. Molars exposed wetly through sliced cheeks. Daughters and mothers, stout and starved. Brains bulged out of bruised skulls. 
in shambolic lines up the stairs to level two. Crowds flick at phones while waiting to meet the original cast of The Thing. T-Rexes get stuck in the revolving door. My legs and skull, ballooned by Percocet, are buoyant as storms of gas on Jupiter. My brother inches my antique wheelchair through the throng. My bandaged big toe aimed out like a spar on a polar icebreaker. We bump the creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't feel a thing. But he snarls, do that one more time, I swear, from his fishy face. Some don bold red hats emblazoned in white make horror rated R again. So much corpse paint, so many corsets and fishnet stockings, cat's eyes contacts, raven hair and Victorian jewelry. So many living dead girls slumped like dolls, seams sewn along once severed limbs who love the young men, who grin to kill. Outside in biting wind, late sunlight cuts. Out here, they're paler, thinner, fatter. Pimples no longer masked by makeup. Some slow with canes, limping careful monster steps the obese fixed in their custom wheelchairs, and the frightened, sad glint in the eye of skeletal teens wondering what beasts they can safely reach for to hug goodbye. The cars that overflowed the lots are parked instead for miles along an access road. The cars thin as the sun goes out behind the trees until there is only a solitary rusted Toyota out in the gusting cold. Bumper stickers for walking dead and insane clown posse on the loose rear bumper. Abandoned at an angle on the snowy mud off the asphalt where the long dead grass grades down to frost that rings like wraiths a blackened lake. There was another new poem, Monster Mania, Con 44. Um, so uh, if anybody has any questions, so I'm, trying, I'm getting a slight echo. It's gone now. Okay. So um, anyway, if anybody has any questions for uh, Ernie, please leave them in the chat windows, either on YouTube or Facebook. Um, I'm watching both, and I'll just pass any questions you have along, so just leave them in the chats. Um, if you're watching on Twitter, I don't pay attention to Twitter, so uh, you have to go to Facebook or YouTube to share any thoughts. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I want to talk more about what we were talking about before, which is the creations of poems. And it was really interesting to hear you say that, um, that the sound comes first um, before the poem even gets on paper, which is interesting. Um, how, how does that appear to you, the sound itself? And, and it brings up another question, too, about your use of form, which, um, you know, you're w really well known for rhyme and for sonnets. I mean, the first book was 60 sonnets. You've, you sort of play around with different forms and, and out of form, too, and, or out of rhyme anyway. It's still, still strongly metered, I think. 
Um, so, so how does that all, how does, what do you mean by you have to have the sound first? And, and is it the first line that's in your head or is it the whole poem is in your head? Yeah, often it's the first line. I mean, what's funny, I mean, the first two books I had were both uh, collections of sonnets, 60 each. The second one was called All of You on the Good Earth, which came out in 2013. Uh, yeah, sometimes that is certainly the case. And so, you know, to, to, to roll back uh, just a second here to, to when I did uh, Apparition at Moss Han, um, Osprey's orbit here, ruling as lords their drowned domains. That came to me as a start. And then I wanted to keep that sound that going. Sometimes it's a thicker sound, sometimes it's a thinner sound, which is to say there'll be more consonants, you know, uh, it also works with syntax. You have long stretched out. When I want to do a breathless thing, like I did in Monster Maniacon, syntactically it cascades for a while using commas, semicolons, dashes to keep it flowing. Sometimes it's tighter and heavier and is in stricter measures that, that strike the ear differently. Um so, the, I mean, that's the thing. That's, that's, that's how it works. I mean, so it's, uh, as I said, these things change. Sometimes you have that first line and you think this is great. And then when you've written everything, you realize that has to go mm -hmm. and you remove it and there's nothing there. I think, uh, uh, is it Frank O'Hara or is it John Ashbury has the poem about like the, the, his friend, the painter, and he has like, is it an orange or a sardine can or something? And by the end of the painting, the, the painting still has the original name of the thing that was in it, but it's been removed and something else has taken its place and it's become a pentimento, something like that. So there might be the ghost of that line haunting this thing, but the line's gone. So that's what I mean by the sound. You know, are, are we going to be dealing with short lines, long lines? Uh, are we going to do with like uh, rhyme or not to rhyme, close rhymes, whole rhymes, half rhymes? Are they spread out? You know, there's all sorts. Even within the, the, the sonnet uh, form that I was writing, I was I was constantly changing it in different ways. There's even one in the second book called past present future which is which is truncated so it's 12 lines and it's in uh tetrameter rather than pentameter which you which was driving some uh reviewers at the time nuts they're like why 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 is this one different i'm like because it's about our inability to actually see the future so they weren't getting it maybe it was too mimetic but the point is there's many different aspects of it with, with the sonnet you already have an idea of how long it's going to be but there's a difference in how long it's going to take you to get there some as i say it might just be a single sentence and it flows and flows easily and it's over like that others are chunkier and they're pounding and it's more like doom metal you know and it takes a long time so it's 14 lines but it's heavier more stresses per line so that's the you get the general feel you know what i'm saying yeah i do it's really interesting you don't hear many people talk about this aspect of it but it always feels to me like a poem boots itself up almost like if you know how a computer boots you know the yeah. first couple bits start moving and then two become four and then four become 16 and it cascades from there right. and, and the, the sound of the poem sort of pulls itself just from that first like clause or something and that mm -hmm. you know without that you know that's what generates the sounds that come later and it just builds off of itself in that way so it's cool to hear you say that because i've always thought uh, something similar about that um the other thing i was wondering about from what you were saying earlier is you mentioned poems of joy 
and mm-hmm. uh, and it's there, it's much more rare. Like we we look for poems that are that are uplifting and happy all the time, and when we find them, I mean, it's it just it's like they're like unicorns, you know. <laughs> and uh, they they really are. And so we had one for the Ekphrastic Challenge uh, on Thursday that we got to publish, and I was just like, yes, an uplifting poem finally, because uh, to me it feels like poems usually deal with problems, because they're sort of a problem solving tool in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so if you're if you're having joy, there's no there's nothing to be solved there. So how do you go about writing a joyous poem? Like you already know you're joyful. There's nothing wrong. So what what do you write about? Yeah, I mean it's it's it, that's a very real thing. And you know I'm reading um, Paradiso, uh, the the last third uh, last canticle of the Divine Comedy of Dante, and everyone loves Inferno because you see this suffering and it's very imaginative. And then Purgatorio has a little bit of suffering. It's less interesting. Everyone's working their way to paradise. If they just do the right things uh, in succession, they move up the mountain. And then when you get to Paradiso, it's just ah, different grades of good and everyone's saintly and, uh, and there's no pain or struggling or strife or anything like that. And it is a little bit more boring. You know? It is a little bit more boring. I think um, poems as problem-solving tools, as you said, that's very apt. And, you know, I do feel that uh, for myself, um, and again, I'm only speaking for myself. Uh, these are not axioms or anything. Uh, it It is therapeutic sometimes to write about things, bad things and hard things and difficult things. Uh, and sort of enshrine them that way, but also see them, step back and see them. You know, I think therapists tell people to write it down, literally write it down and see what it looks like when you've written it down. And so it's not just swirling in your head. It starts to take form and you almost feel like you have control. Well, you do have control of, of the artistic process, which gives you a feeling of agency and power. You know, even if it's just on what you are doing on one page, it, it is there. Uh, whereas, whereas poems of joy, I try uh, to, it's just capture it so it's not gone forever, hmm. you know, and try to transmit it to someone else because it won't even be there for me anymore an hour later. Uh, because I think you have to be surprised by joy. I think that's the name of a book by C.S. Lewis. Um, you can be content for stretches, but you can't be deliriously happy for stretches, you know what I mean? It, it, it just doesn't work that way, really. So I think you have to be almost surprised in the thing that made you so happy. Things came together, and you can't recreate it. We've all done that. Like, that was so much fun. Let's do that again. And you put all the ingredients back in, and it just doesn't happen, you know? So the joy for me is more just an attempt to, to freeze it and and honor it. Uh, it's not working a problem out at all. It's like, well, the the problem that faces you is how do you do this without being cloying, cliched, uh, without being sentimental? Uh, is there a way you can do this uh, without people saying, ah, hell with you, you know? I don't want to hear how happy you are. <laughs> so, yeah, they are rare, but I think they're they're just as important as any other kind of poem. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, a lot of times I think of poems, and, and it goes back to the horror genre thing, um, where I, I think um, poems or just storytelling in general evolved as a way of, a, as a teaching tool, you know, like we learn about the world and what, what's good and what's bad and what to do and what not to do um, by these tales. And so, so horror and those kind of um, that genre type story, you know, is a, is a cautionary tale, you know, and it's something you can learn from. And, and it comes out of the, the collective unconscious kind of, you know, the zombie movies in relation to the atomic fears and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they do play a role like that. And it's weird to think of the way that, that 
joyful stories play, you know, like is a, you know, as a positive, a positive lesson instead of a negative, yeah. but the surprise is an interesting way to look at it. Cause joy does have surprise. It's a good way to put it. I never thought of it that way. Right. Um, let's hear another poem. What, what do you want to read next? Oh, so, okay. So I'll do another one. This is, uh, again, from Caligulan. This is one of these ones, uh, sort of, you know, ripped from the headlines, so to speak, just the title. It, the title just sets the tone. It's called Hotel Water Deemed Safe Despite Corpse, uh, which, as grim as it is, is actually almost funny. <laughs> I know. It, yeah, I remember this headline, too. It's one of those headlines that just, it stands it's out real. in your memory. Yeah, yeah I do so remember happened, that. <laughs> it's very, very haunting, and it's and it's it's traumatic and, and, and terrifying in its way. And it, uh, There's this video of this woman at a hotel, maybe in Los Angeles. It is, yeah. And she keeps getting on. That's the footage from the camera on the elevator. She keeps getting on as if she's being chased by something. And you can't figure out what's going on. And she's going from floor to floor looking terrified and moving around in erratic ways. And then her body was found in the water tank on, on the roof. Um, and then hotel water deemed safe despite corpse was the, the, uh, the hotel telling people no, it's fine, really. It's okay. You can still stay here. <laughs> uh, and what it does is sets sets a tone uh, for a poem that doesn't even actually have a, a subject per se. It's just about anxiety and, and terror. And so hotel water deemed safe despite corpse. Some dawns you want to hide on the far side of the sun. Your flanks staved in, reserves spent, mercenaries in revolt. At least that's how it feels. Ill, Ill warnings lap all night in the tide. Other news, too. Rancid smells steam from a vent. You can only wait for what a day reveals. One more hour a wash in trivial terrors. Storms come together to make this weather, which, though bad, like us, won't stay here long. You need to get control. Make no errors. You need to focus. You need to stay strong. When someone dies, there's a lot of work to do. You need to pull yourself together. No time for distractions or to ask why or who. That was Hotel Water Deemed Safe Despite Corpse from Caligulan. Um, let me see. So um, a lot of people have mentioned already that uh, you have a great reading voice. Um, which I wish I had. I need to. I need okay, to take so lessons from I, you. I can't see any of these comments, so keep them coming. That's great. No, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, Dave Williams <laughs> says beautiful reading voice here, and I wondered about that about um how you go about that because I feel um I end up getting like caught up in the way I would read a poem to myself, which is like a sub vocalized voice in my head. Um, but I, I tend to like think too fast and move too fast, I think. And you take your time with it. So is that a conscious thing that you do, um, you know, slowing it down or is that how you enjoy poetry? Like, how do you think, and you don't have the poet voice either where it's like overly enunciated or whatever. Um, so, so how do you think about the reading as a performance? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to bring out the dramatic contours of, of the poem, and it's written for my voice, you know? So that's the thing. Uh, I'm not writing this for other people. I hope it's designed in such a way that you, you can't really do too much uh, devilment to it. Like anyone who reads it, it's going to come out right. Uh, the rhymes are there, the meter is there, the, the right words in the right place, in the right order. But it's really written for, for my own instrument, you know. And so um, it, it, it's it got a little bit of the basso profundo. It's got a little bit of this, the seriousness and the, and the slowness. Um, and I know your style. I've, read, I've been lucky enough to read with you twice in New York City and in Los Angeles. I hope we can do it again someday. That'd be great. You write a very different style. And, it's, um, and that does tend to go, it's just... American fractal, right? It's just like things are coming from a million directions and it's more associative and, and faster. But it's just like different kinds of music. I mean, that, that is what's important about poetry is the music of it. Prose doesn't have to have any music to be successful. You know, you have writers like Philip K. Dick who, you know, just they, they wrote with their hands more than their brains. It's all idea, concept oriented. And it's very powerful and important stuff. But word for word, it's just slammed out on this benzedrine 18 hour you know rush and so um you can't get away with that in poetry so poetry might have a light music might have a heavy music it might have it might be l'allegro it might be il pensero you know as milton did and those have very different sounds and, and they have different feelings and so so yes they, they this is all intentional i do design it to be read um deliberately so to speak uh and with dramatic emphasis because one my one complaint you know i, I co-host a, a poetry reading series here in the city in philadelphia i've been to many many poetry readings i own many uh, albums vinyl albums of poetry and i have a vast amount of it on mp3 and things like that a lot of things people are too fast they're going as fast as their brain or they have maybe some anxiety where the type of poetry they're reading doesn't benefit from going fast. There is poetry that should be read fast, but it's written to be read fast. It's like thrash metal. It should be played fast. That's what they designed it to do. That's what the drums and the guitars are doing. It would sound ridiculous if you slowed it down. Um, but there's people who, who write poems that really are so meditative that and you or image-based, you need to slow it down and get that in your head. I forget who said it. I don't know if it was Wallace Stevens or Robert Frost. Someone said you can never read a poem too slowly because to you, the reader, you, you hear how quickly I'm speaking right now impromptu. So this is extempore. It's just as it's coming out of my brain. The poetry is not just coming out of my brain. It's for me, it's sculpted and structured as a work of literary art. And the music is foremost of that. It's not just what it, what it says. It's how it says it. And it's not just what it, what it um, contains, but what it does, because it actually, it's an action. It, and you're bringing it to life. It's an engine and you're breathing the air into it to bring it back to life. And so hypothetically in a thousand years, uh, if someone picked it up and understood this type of English, you know, who knows what we'll be speaking in the future or if there'll be any people left, they would be able to open it up and it comes to life again with the, literally with the breath. So if I read an ancient Greek poem written by someone 2500 years ago my breath brings it to life again it's 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 inspirited it's inspiration it's uh the intaking of life uh, through breath um and so the music is an important part of that because if someone picks up a, a violin and plays uh bach uh he's been dead for hundreds of years and yet something from his mind and his soul 
is coming to life and moving us again through human motion, through material space. And uh, so there's the physiological aspect of the poem. It, it has a cerebral component. It has an emotional component, but it's also physical. It's air vibrating. It's going through all these wires. Everyone's are going through the air wirelessly and people are hearing me speak and it's being reproduced by their speakers and vibrating in their headphones, in their rooms. You know, that's, that's magic. That's absolute magic, you know? And so the one thing I would always tell people is slow down and let the images build in our minds. Let us get what you're doing. Boom. You know, unless it's written to go fast, in which case, yeah. hey, man. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to work on that. Although I, um, <laughs> I've been telling myself I'm going to work on that for 116 episodes now. Um, even just extemporaneously talking, I, I need to slow down a little bit. Um, but this is just how, how, I don't know, it's how I move. Um, but there's a question here. Um, we'll go back to a little bit, maybe for the last time talking about the horror stuff. But um, Vicky Miko has a question about this. It's interesting. Um, she says, what are your thoughts about today's high technology versus what's left to the imagination? Um, I love some old classics. Uh, the Haunting of Hill House is a terrific example. So so talking sort of in the, the cinematography or the, the film, um, you know, versions of horror, but there's a way that the old movies used to move so much more slower and be more atmospheric. And now it's like all these visual effects. Um, do you think that poetry lends itself to one or the other? And is there stuff you have to say about that? Oh, yeah, I definitely do. I was just thinking about that today, in fact. So, you know, I recently, uh, uh, just two weeks ago, I read Cujo, which is a novel by Stephen King. And he was so drunk at that period in his life, he says he doesn't remember writing it. So it actually was like a brand new novel to him when he read it. And uh, there's a scene, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, where a woman and her child are trapped in this car um, at this farm. And there's a rabid dog named Cujo and they can't get out of the car. And the door is right there. They can hear the phone ringing in the farmhouse. It's 10 feet away, but they can't get out of the, heart, the, the, the car. And it's a hot, hot day. And every time someone is planning to come visit, the postman, a police officer, they change their mind and don't come. And I'm thinking, if she had a cell phone, it'll be over like that. So, that, <laughs> yeah. so that's a little bit of a joke. But like, there's so many movies that cell phones would not allow to happen anymore. Okay. Uh, the thing, you know, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft has a very important essay called um, the, Super, uh, the Supernatural in Literature. And he says, it, the first sentence is, uh, the oldest fear is the fear of the unknown. Um, and so Stephen King talks in Dance Macabre, a great book. That's a nonfiction book about the art of writing horror. Uh, if you don't know what it is, it's not fiction. He talks about opening the door just a little bit. And you can get a sense that there's something in the room. And every single viewer or reader creates their own most terrifying thing. But if you fling the door open, oh, it's a monster with three heads. It's really not that scary. So the problem with CGI is this. I have a theory, which is that, you know, when you, the more money you put into a horror movie, the worse the results are probably going to be for two reasons. For one thing, the money in movies usually is going to go to one of two places. Famous actors. So as soon as I see an actor I know from something else, I'm not scared. It doesn't feel real anymore. I don't want to see an actor who's really good looking. I don't want them to all be really good. It just feels fake. Show me some normal people. That's terrifying. It could be me. Um, the other thing they pour the money into is CGI. And 
they have to use it. That means the door has to be thrown open all the time. Look at this thing with a thousand tentacles coming at you. And it's just now we have to use up the budget. Here's 10 more million dollars of digital effects. It's not scary. And I've seen movie after movie after movie ruined with that. Because what we're really afraid of is what goes bump in the night. And that's why, you know, things, especially with low budget things, the lower the budget, the creepier it feels because it just feels out of control. It feels weird. It feels real. We call it found footage. So you think of Blair Witch, uh, Paranormal Activity. The theme of the movie is someone just found this cache of tapes or video of some kind and they're playing it back. Okay. And you're watching people unravel in real time and these things happen. There's a reason why that's scary. And if we look back in the history of, of the Gothic going to the 18th century, things like, you know, the Castle of Otranto, things like this, they were written as if they were an old manuscript discovered in a castle and someone has translated it for the first time. And often authors would leave their names off and it would be anonymous because it's just found. This is a story that's real. You know, if you've ever read Dracula, which is a novel about uh, the biggest of all vampires uh, from Bram Stoker, the entire novel consists of letters, diary entries, newspaper reports, scientific papers, things like this. There is no omniscient narrator. It's stuff someone just gathered all these documents together and pieced together the story of this vampire coming from the old world to infect people in England. So, yeah, that sort of thing is very effective. But really, like The Haunting of Hill House, the, what, you know, the book as well as the best versions of the movie, it's just someone turning a doorknob ever so slightly and then letting it go. And you're like, who's there? Who is there someone there? You know, you don't need CGI. I don't want to see the ghost. It's scarier if I don't know. So you'll scare me more uh, on a $10,000 budget at an abandoned insane asylum or an old house knocking on the walls than if you give me $100 million worth of space aliens walking all over the place. It's just not scary. So that's a really good question, and I think she's right. Uh, I think the, the big question is how do we find horror with the new technology? I mean, the telephone um in the ring but already like when the ring came out i watched it on dvd and it was still like a set tape they were using that's <laughs> this is the american version of ringu which is the very scary japanese series um and boy that's that one scared me i literally screamed and nearly ran out of the room when i saw that one that was something because that's another thing they do with some of these movies it's silent so you keep turning it up really loud and so when something does happen you're like because music is a whole other thing i mean there's uh you know talk about a movie made for a little very little money is uh john carpenter's halloween uh which uh, is a great movie and i've seen versions of it where they take his soundtrack out which was in what they were thinking of doing is it would just be sort of the wind what's funny is, is it was shot in california so there are no leaves so they just had to bring leaves from somewhere else and blow them around constantly because it's supposed to be Illinois, but it actually shot it outside of L.A. Anyway, uh, the point is that there's not a lot of money in that movie. There were no stars. I mean, Donald Pleasance is a B-movie uh, authority figure. He's the uh, caretaker uh, and saying of Michael Myers saying he's the boogeyman. You know? But aside from that, it's a bunch of 18 and 20-year-old actresses and actors Jamie Lee Curtis would go on to be very famous. But what's scary is like these aren't famous people. They're just they look like a bunch of kids. 
You know, so the less money you put into it, the better it's probably going to be. But how do we use all this new technology? I know people have tried to do things with the internet. There have been things, you know, but that it ages really quickly. So now that Facebook is renaming itself, uh, what is it called? The meta. The meta. Oh, God. All right. Well, that's the Greek preface that uh, it just means prefix that means beyond. So great. Whatever. Maybe that's that's scary enough that we don't need any extra stories about it. <laughs> Facebook is scary enough as it is. I, I think it is. Uh, is it one point, did you know who uh, whose house it is in the Halloween? Who owns that house? No. Ron Kirchy, the poet. The Red Hand Press poet. That's his house. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously? Seriously, yeah. You can go oh God, go visit him, and it's that it's that house. People come up, you know, especially tonight or you know this weekend, they'll be all over his right. house. But they come oh, for you know for selfies and stuff constantly. That's great. What it's a beautiful house too. It, it is, yeah, yeah, right across wow. from the library too. I, I'm I'm jealous of that guy. But anyway, that's a side story. <laughs> um, so while we're talking about that, do you have any recommendations for like a, a movie uh, that's in the last like ten years, say, that does really good job with that kind of uh, atmosphere and 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 not do overdoing it with CGI? Yeah, well, I think um, it follows. Do you know this film? I can't remember. I, I have a bad memory, so I don't know if I've seen it or I've not. I've seen it a few times, yeah. uh, but it's sort of uh, it's like it's like uh, it plays on uh, sort of the sort of teenage fear of like sex and venereal disease, and it's like if you're it, there's always something coming for you, so you can pass and make somebody else it. And then that thing is always following them. So it's always these tiny little, it's not, there are, there's a little bit of special effects, but it's just in the corner. So if you're, it also is perfect for big screens now. So if this came out in the seventies or eighties, no one would get it. Now we're watching on these big flat screens. And as the people are talking, you'll just see something really tiny moving toward them incessantly in the background. And it really is unsettling. There's also an Australian one made for almost no money on a Kickstarter program. I think it's called the tunnel. Um, 2011. It's called the It's called the Tunnel. It's an Australian film that's made where they just basically took cameras down uh, into the sewers below Sydney, Australia, and it's it's creepy. It's a found footage monster horror mm -hmm. film about some kids. I it might not be kids. It might be like the government keeps taping off all these areas. And I think that it might be an investigative reporter who's like asks her cameraman. That's why there's a camera. You have to explain why is there a camera on all the time in the found footage movies and says, hey, like, let's go. Let's just break in through the police tape and see what's going on down there. So woo, the tunnel's good. It follows is a good one. The Babadook is another Australian oh, one. I love that one. That was good. Babadook's a yeah. good one. Yeah. So. Um, I'm sure if we wanted to dwell on this, I could uh, think of more. It's just that lately I haven't been watching many because my son's sleep patterns are such that by the time he's asleep, we just are already falling asleep. No, too. I get you the parent um, thing. Another one. My wife won't watch anything that has kids in it, so she couldn't watch The Witch with me. But that is I love The Witch. Yeah, really good. That was good. Um, let's. I'm looking at the clock now. We got to get to more poems. Let's read yeah. uh, the next one. I think Constellations of Autumn. Yeah, Constellations of Autumn. So this is, uh, it is truth in advertising. It is what it, it, it means to be. It's the constellations of autumn. Some are happiest when autumn comes. Long for turning leaves. Aficionados of first frost. Put out gourds. Ornamental sheaves of wheat. They dress front porches as forsaken tombs. Imagine themselves ghoul, 
zombie, and ghost. Use kitchen knives to jab holes in sheets. They relish mornings when windows are sheets of ice. Yearn to don soft panoplies of scarves and gloves. And wait all year to welcome the hard freeze that forces birds south, woodchucks to earth, mice to infiltrate warm cupboards. Learn to love all that leans into its finish. Truly pleased to bask in bereavement's graceful glow, alive in it, until it, too, must go. That was Consolations of Autumn from Caligulan. Um, I know I said I want to get to other topics, but we do have another question that I thought was interesting um, about about horror and, and things like that. And that was, um, I have to find it again, though, in the chat window. It was Patrice Wilson. Yeah, she, uh, Patrice Wilson says, I've read analyses of why people are attracted to horror, and they're usually Freudian. Um, I always thought it was more complicated than that. Do you have any thoughts about, about the Freudian uh, compulsion to horror? Well, the Freudian aspect sounds complicated enough to me if you actually go and back and read and read the Freud as opposed to, you know, we, we throw Freudian terms around, but when you read Freud, it, it's, it's a little bit more fraught, a little bit more difficult. There's a few different theories um, that I maybe have. I don't know. I think one, it depends because horror is a big tent. It's a broad subject. And there's everything from atmospheric, quiet things that leave you unsettled a ghost story, as we mentioned, to slasher films that gross you out. Um, and I think those on the one end of the spectrum, it might have a little bit more to do with why we ride roller coasters or bungee jump or do things like that. Um, because there is actually a, a sort of an adrenal thrill that comes with facing something that we're scared of. Um, like going into a, an amusement park haunted house. And letting them scare you and jump out at you. And you're like, ah! You know, there's a, an old prison here, Eastern State Penitentiary here in Philadelphia, that is sort of a standing ruin. It's still it's still there. Um, but they do a thing called Terror Behind the Walls every year, where you go into this ruined prison and you're chased by people who are absolutely terrifying. I mean, they come after you with chainsaws, real chainsaws, with the... I guess the teeth are off, but like, nonetheless, when someone's waving one of those in your face in a meat locker, you're like, Oh my God, you know? So it's because it gives us a thrill and we feel relieved when it's over because we survived it. Um, in terms of other things, it's also like revisiting the scene of the crime or like ghosts are sort of these echoes of some horrible thing that happened long ago that is unresolved in something like haunting of Hill house. One of the things that makes it so beautifully complicated in a Shirley Jackson way is that we don't know if it's happening or if it's just being imagined. Is this woman just writing it on the walls herself? Is she actually, because they make it clear she's a little shaky. She's a little troubled. The people with her know that she's got a history of maybe hallucinating and acting out in odd ways. And so we're seeing it from her perspective, not, not in the first person, but she's the character we follow. We're seeing it from her perspective, and we're left wondering at the end if any of it even happened, or if this is a deep-seated trauma of her own uh, that she, so she's acting out in some way, which is fr just as frightening. So the beauty of that is we don't know which one it is, and they're both equally frightening. Uh, 
Um, so there's that. And so there's the returning to the scene of the crime. There's also another aspect of horror, which is like, wow, my life isn't that bad. I'm not chained up with a hand, hacksaw with someone telling me I have to saw my own leg off or my my spouse dies or whatever they're doing in the Saw movies. So once you survive that, say, like, wow, things weren't so bad. Um, so it's complicated because horror is complicated and there's so many different uh, ways of doing it. As I said, it goes from monsters, humorousness. You know, my wife and son are down in our basement watching the monsters movie, which I didn't even know existed. I know there's a new one that Rob Zombie's making right now, but there was a full length in color monsters movie that came out that they're airing on one of the, you know, internet, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, antenna stations around here. So they're watching that. That's where we get to see what their actual colors are. They're green. Uh, which the the old show is black and white. So that's goofy. The Adams Family is goofy. But I still got a little scared as a little kid when I saw Adams Family. I was creeped out by the hand that comes out and answers the phone. Cousin It is really creepy and scary. Uh, so there's a humorous end. There's a scary end. There's the tra traumatic end. I mean, if you watch Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, some people say that's like a, the channeling of the unresolved horrors of the Vietnam War or something like people have these grand statements but it is an exasperating and exhausting and terrifying movie that is just screams and chainsaws roaring at you for three hours you know it's upsetting like you feel like you've been really put through it and there's plenty of people I'm sure who have no interest in horror whatsoever I'm sure a lot of people don't um, and as I get older I'm more just into the quiet horror that's what I want to see. The quieter, the better. No CGI, please. It's just I don't need to. I don't even need to see it. Let me imagine it. Yeah. yeah. Well, for for me, the the am I going crazy is the scariest uh, the scariest thing. Like I even you know when I was a kid, like mirrors scared me. Just the idea that I would see something in the mirror that wasn't there was like the oh, scariest yeah. thing that I could imagine. And then yeah. even at, at, at like twenty, I worked in a dark room at Kodak on one summer during college. And, um, you know, if you're in a dark room, it, it's like, um, you know, sensory deprivation, uh, completely dark. It was this really sensitive movie film that we were doing. We were punching the little feed holes in the movie film. And, um, and every, we'd sit there for five minutes while the machine ran and we'd just like refeed the machine every time. And you can't see anything. There's no like watches. There's no light. And you, and you can't hear anything. And you start seeing things, man. And uh, that, I got scared like as an adult, in a, you know, just being in a dark room all day. Um, yeah. and, and, but it was the idea that, um, you know, that, that I'm seeing something that's not there and no one else would see. That's like the most frightening, uh, to right. me. You know, there's a, there's a, a great Henry, Henry James also wrote really good ghost stories. Talk about quiet. Um, and there's one of them, I forget the name of it. Uh, Sir Count Ormond, I think it's called where there's a woman, uh, who's at a, uh, maybe at a funeral or a, a, some kind of gathering and she can see this creepy guy, but no one else can see him. And so she has to keep pretending he's not there while she's making conversation. And then she meets another guy and he's like, do you see him too? And so the, they're, they connect by both being able to see this person, this apparition no one else can see. Also, mirrors are profoundly creepy things. We, we take them for granted. I mean, I mean, you know, even ancient Greeks and Romans, they, they would polish metal. But they didn't have glass the way we have glass that is reflective glass. We take it for granted. There's mirrors all over the place. But there's nothing worse than you know being in a place where you're an unfamiliar place and in the dark coming up to yourself in a mirror and not knowing the mirror is there. You know, that's it's scary. And the thought of um, 
something being behind you in the mirror and then you turn around and it's not there or or you go down to splash your face and when you come up there's something behind you you know like all these horror movie tropes yeah but that's a good lead-in i think that, that is actually it's an accident uh accidental lead-in but the next poem on here is that i'm leaving an old mirror out at the curb yeah i mean if you think um there's a superstition surrounding mirrors which is uh that it's seven years of bad luck to break a mirror and so i thought i had this like full-length mirror in this black frame and it was starting to fall apart and it's something like you know when i first moved to new york i lived with like four or five other people in this huge loft downtown and people left things took things over the years it didn't matter and I, it wasn't mine but i took it with me and so i carried it with me everywhere until i got even to the house where i am today in west philadelphia and i finally was like this thing's falling apart i'm gonna throw it away so i took it out and i left it on a pile on the trash and as I walked away, I looked back at it and saw myself reflected fully in it as if I were throwing myself away, oh, you know, and thought, well, when that gets smashed in the truck, that's definitely going to be seven years. Bad luck for me. So I wrote this poem. It's called On Leaving an Old Mirror Out at the Curb. What do I call you at the end? Witness? Mimic? Tyrant of the departed years, at times flatterer, others still life, ghost, pure pool, twin, ludicrous door, or clearness leading nowhere, yet alluring as a frontier, great eye, Roommate, spy, ominous, silent host. Despite all you've witnessed and returned, you recall nothing in your absolute present. Silent movie, brittle glass bed, leaning gurney, Knowing only what is shown, nothing learned, what occurs but never what it has meant, will be, or was. Forgive this last journey into the earth, where you'll be bent and crack, where you'll shatter but be serene as stone, free from vanities that bathe the bone. Razors of cold light lodged blindly in black. It was on leaving an old mirror out at the curb from Caligulan. Um, I, did, I do want to move on to other topics, but people just keep having interesting questions about horror. And uh, Nate Jacobs asked something interesting here over on Facebook. He says, is there a poetry equivalent to the horror film Jump Scare? I would love to read something like that. Is, is there something, is there a poem you've ever read that, that manages that kind of like, like bam, like a, you know, that jump cut kind of scare? Oh, I don't know. So is that, you, you mean uh, the technique? Is there actually something called jump scare or just you mean the technique of jump scares? I, I think, um, I don't know. I'm not sure what he means. That's what, that's what the question says. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
possibly. Can you think um, of the, here's a different question? Can you think of the scariest poem you've ever read by someone else? Is is there, is there something that actually like shocked you? It, it is being scared while reading a poem. I don't know. We'll see if my last poem can do it though. <laughs> okay. Um, but before we move on to that, that I want to talk a little bit about this uh, this dark web um, poetry journal, which I didn't know how to pronounce. How do you pronounce that? And and what I is call it? it Cocytus. It's a it's a river in hell. Uh-huh. In the ancient, the ancient, the classical concept of the underworld, you know. Uh, so, so what? What is that? Like, why have a poetry journal on the dark web? And uh, and what? What is it? Like, what? What is gained from it? I've never heard of anything like this before. So I'm just curious. Oh, really? Yes, yeah, probably the same reason I was I sold in poetry NFT too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like trying out new technologies because I also like doing things on uh, printing presses, traditional presses. You know, I just had a um, a press called Tolland Press in Massachusetts, put out a really nice, large broadside of my poem, Last Rites, which um, has a, a dark title, but it is about a moment of joy in, in a parent's life, which might be the last thing you remember, you know, and you hope that that's the sort of last thing you remember. Anyway, it, it, it appeared in the Hudson Review, and then it was printed. So this was hand-printed on a 6,000-pound a monstrous machine, this uh, amazing, huge printing press. Um, with some artwork created by my son that they made a, a rubber plate for. So anything from that to NFTs, the dark web, I want to try everything out and do it all, you know. So the most traditional things, um, you know, I want to do like one of the sort of runic presses, one of these ancient, they're called cylinder seals. Uh, my wife works in an archaeological museum in the Greek and Roman Etruscan section. So it looks like a little dough roller. And when you ink it and roll it out, it gives you a story. Um, and so eventually I would like to issue a poem in, that comes to you as a little cylinder, cylinder seal, that you ink it and you roll it and you get the poem. So these are just different ways of thinking about poetry. So, yeah, the idea of, of the Dark Web magazine is not only – so who dares go there, first of all? You need to get a heavily encrypted uh, – yeah, there's, there's like a, a modified Tor browser. You definitely shouldn't do it at work. They'll think something crazy is happening. Uh, eats up a lot of bandwidth, too. Mm -hmm. um, and once you go in there, I mean, this is the dark web. Don't move around in it. Just, But if you go down into this, you'll see these poems. And the idea is I have really sort of spooky imagery. And it is because uh, it's a very basic format compared to what you're seeing on the normal Internet because everything is so encrypted. It's very slow. Uh, so you have, But the poems are usually very... Uh, dark in nature or they have uh, a theme that has something to do with the underworld or hell you know and so i've had you know alicia stallings and uh, mujmadar all, all sorts of people have been giving me great stuff for it you know and uh to to read those things you have to actually download a heavily modified tour browser and specifically go in and use it so it takes this step of effort because we can just click on anything now and read the poem it's so easy What's harder? Getting something that's printed to come to you through the mail. Uh, getting something that was printed with letterpress, ink on a huge press, you know, getting that through the mail. The internet just slows it down a little bit, you know, and it's like I only post two or three things a year in there. And it's like you just know it's it's down there, I call it. Like it's not – it doesn't exist in any actual – longitudinal space but I, I say you know what lurks down there well we know you can buy weapons and drugs and hitmen and all stuff like that but you can also find poetry now and i think 
I may lay claim to being the first, certainly the first all poetry magazine on the dark web. So I don't know how many people have actually gone through the trouble, although, you know, someone pointed out that it actually has a lot of, it's, it's kind of a, a surprising number of visitors, but some of those are surely bots that are crawling all over it looking for stuff, you know? So yeah, it's like the matrix. It's, yeah. It's, I was going to say, I mean, it's uh, it's how we would even know if anybody has read it. I mean, you know, it's all, uh, you know, you can still can see you... all that information. Oh, can you? you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can still tell. Yeah. Um, and so because it's, it's like, it's, it's still like you're using WordPress. You, you do stuff like, with, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, except that you're doing it in the dark web. So it's very black and dark and like everything's shrouded. Um, and it's not as appealing to look at, uh, but you're still able to control and track what's going on and lead people to it. And you have specific links and, and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's kind of a whim. I, I lay, I lay no claims to this being a, of great profundity mm-hmm. or importance. It, it's you know? interesting though. It's an interesting concept. And then, uh, the NFT thing too, just really quickly, uh, do you think that's the future for poetry or do you think it's a one-off type thing? Cause no, I, I don't think I mean, it is a way to to make poems. You know, if you, I could imagine, you know, well known poets anyway, the kind that are on, you know, Blue Flower Arts and get hundred thousand or ten thousand dollars a reading gig. They could they could make their poems be like collectible like art in a way that we've never had before. They um, probably could. I mean, yeah, if you had a big enough following and you were famous enough, you know, John Poach, uh, the Texas poet, like he's definitely he collects them, uh, he buys them, he sells them, he. He uh, he's he's big on it, but the thing is to create it. It was a it was a huge pain. I mean, I sold it through OpenSea, which is the NFT uh, marketplace uh, that is housed at Hunter College MFA program in in Manhattan, and it is a poem called "Riddle Me," which is about it is its own answer. I mean, it is an NFT poem, and it's written in in, in meter and rhyme. So if nothing else, it may be another first, which is the first NFT poem to sell. And if not the first to sell that uses those implements uh, and also is a riddle about NFT poems, you know. So it was another thing where I just I figured, let's get into this. Let's find out what what the possibilities are. I don't I'm willing to go on record saying I don't think there's a great future for it. I don't think it's that important. I think for visual arts, maybe. Mm-hmm. But even that seems to be cooling off now. It's the whole crypto thing. You you need to have a crypto wallet uh, in order to, and you have to buy ether in order to create it and host it there. And then uh, someone needs to buy it using a cryptocurrency. You can't just use regular money to buy it. So that's all. Who knows? I mean, obviously, uh, cryptocurrency is is here to stay, uh, and it may start getting regulated, and and it may wind up being just as boring as everything else is someday. Uh, and I think NFTs are just a little bit of a, a spinoff. Of, of that and I know people are buying these little tokens and, and some of it's more like Pokemon than fine art in terms of uh, now, now there's anything wrong with Pokemon I just mean it's like oh I've, I've got this red bird now I'm going to get the blue bird and the green bird and then you trade them and sell them to some guy in Hong Kong who sells it to somebody else in Russia you know I mean I don't see the poetry world really taking to that <laughs> well but I don't I know I mean no. put it on the board just to yeah. have it up there and say I did it I tried it. I wanted to see what, you know, because I'm 51 and I want to stay aware of what's going on without seeming like I'm totally out of it. But with ever, without ever losing touch of, of 
the origins of, you know, because I'm I'm maybe the last generation that grew up writing and and publishing poems before the internet. Uh, so when you submitted, you had to go down to the post office with a self-addressed stamped envelope and you had to print it all out. But then there's a generation before that doing it with typewriters. Before that, people were copying it out by hand and had to have someone set it in type. And before that, it goes all the way back thousands of years. And it was memorized for hundreds of years. And just poetry exists in so many different ways. And because the music of it is so important, I mean, the ideal to me would be that it would never be written down. It would just be memorized and learned from person to person. But we don't have the time. So we we, we, write, we have to write it down and share it that way. Mm-hmm. Also, there's certain complexities that would that work on the page or the screen that you couldn't do uh, that I, and I, I indulge in those as well. Uh, but the, to me, the pure form is just what you hear when you go to a reading or when you memorize the poem and read it back to yourself. Uh, the sound to me is what's eternal and the way we write it down or store it is of a secondary nature. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. And um, and yeah, John Polk um, has that. It's a it's a journal for. I don't if, I don't know if people how familiar if we have to explain what we're even talking about. But but that's <laughs> that's putting you know the the di- digital version of things in a way it's it stands for non fungible token, right? Non fungible. Yep. And then yep. and so there's only one copy of this because it's on the blockchain. And John Polk has a whole literary magazine where if you have a poem accepted, um, do you know what it's called? His his magazine. I don't oh, remember he has- either. I don't actually. Yeah, but but if he, you have a started, poem, yeah. he started thirty-two poems. But I mean, he's moved. He's kind yeah. Of he has a new poem. It's called oh, it's called Ether Poems. You know, like Ethereum. Oh, and you, right, that's right. what it is. And and if you so if you publish there, it's permanently on the blockchain forever and on Ethereum's blockchain. And then and then people who can buy it through there with tokens, and you get like a little bit of it as the author. It's it's interesting. I, right. I don't know. It's interesting to play with. So I'm, I'm, it's cool to see that you and him are playing with stuff like this. Yeah, he, he more than I, because yeah. the thing is, he'll, he'll always tag me and say, aside from Ernest Hilbert, what poets are interested in the possibilities of? And I'm like, I I tried the one thing and I, I don't really have plans for much else. I mean, the one thing I was going to do, you know, I find one thing that some modern artists do interesting is when they use the economy and the marketplace of modern art as an art form, you know, like Damien Hirst, people like that. And so I was thinking what I wanted to do is have an auction for one of mine that would be a poem about being posthumous where the auction wouldn't end for 30 or 40 years, where I'm pretty much guaranteed that I won't be here anymore. So let's just say, let's be really optimistic and say 50 years from now. So I would never receive any money from it. Um, and the auction would go on long. It still would not belong to anybody until after I was dead. Then I realized that uh, so I'd be using my own mortality. It would be a, a memento mori poem about the transience of life, about things lasting beyond us. And the, that would be the purpose of the auction would be to talk about that. And then I realized that the, the longest you can do is like three years. Or I'm like, so hopefully, come on, man. <laughs> so that so once I realized it was impractical, I kind of dropped my second NFT idea and then never came up with a third mm-hmm. and kind of just went back to to writing poems again. So gotcha, gotcha. Well, I don't know if anybody else is interested in that, but you know, as a publisher and editor, I I, I pay try to pay attention to what's going on too and, and know where things might move. And um, so it's interesting to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, let, let's finish out. We're a little over time, but uh, thanks for taking extra time with us. Uh, do you want to finish out with that last poem? Yes, Insomnia Redux. This was also in the Hudson Review, actually. It's- Interesting that they chose this, but it's, uh, and for me, it's just, you know, most of my poems are one page, I and mean, a lot of them are sonnets. 
even shorter. Um, they don't usually go for, for several pages. This does. It's really, I mean, if you look, depending on how it's typeset, it's really just two pages because these are in couplets. And the rhymes are sort of scattered down them. So they're not rhymed couplets. It's just in couplets. Insomnia Redux. The house creaks as if alive. And outside, recycling bins rattle. Magnifiers of underlying silence. The hour proves again. She lacks whatever sleep requires. The black seems to change, but moves as only one darkness with her inside. She prods his back to see if he's asleep, but he's out. She can't understand why, but she can't stop thinking of the basement. The little room almost closed with clutter deep in winter earth. Cold, even in July. Where they store Christmas ornaments, Halloween costumes, Easter decorations. She rises, pulls her slippers on, thinking the floors will be cold. And descends a staircase, then another. Thinking of compensations that keep her close to him. Closing doors as she goes. As if partly to erase what falls behind her. Switching on every light till the house is bright as a cruise ship stranded on the dark hill. She pauses in the kitchen to open a drawer, then down to the last place to light the bare bulb in the basement. What a thrill to light the house as if it burns. Then she pulls the breaker and the house goes black. He wakes, feels for her, but can't find her. The flashlight's bewildering beam turns through the house, casting a harp of shadows up the wall through the back of a chair, scaring off a cat. But she's nowhere, and he has to get the house lit again, so he keeps on, room to room, until he's in the basement. And there, in the small circle of light, breaker box and main, he sees someone kneeling and weirdly still, slumped doll-like, hair-shrouding face. It rises slowly, and he's relieved it's she, and then, confused, sees it's not she at all. Somehow, how, he can't tell. She's taken his place behind a mask that looks like, could it be? Like his face. And he's backed to the icy wall. 
And then she lifts the blade to him as she pleads through the slit hole of mouth. Please help me. Yeah, that's a scary poem. Insomnia Redux from uh, Caligulan. Um, Ernest, thanks so much for being a guest today. And before you go, what is your most recent book? And do you have any idea when your next book is coming out? Do you have a sense of that yet or not? I don't uh, because I don't have a publisher yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the most recent book was 2019. It's called Last One Out. Uh, and that's also Measure Press. So these are both Measure Press books. Gotcha. Um, and they're both in print, uh, as are the two that came before it, 60 Sonnets, all of you on the good earth. Those are paperbacks from uh, trade paperbacks from Red Hen. Uh, we are, you know, that's our we're label mates, I guess. Yeah, we <laughs> we're, are. We're both on Red <laughs> Except Hen. Except you keep writing, and I just uh, throw them in drawers <laughs> and don't do anything. <laughs> and I, you know, we're on a book called. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I, I keep going through it again, refining it, refining it, you know, over and over and over again. Called Storm Swimmer. Yeah, it's it's as probably as close to done as it's going to get. And then another one called High Ashes. Beyond that, which is a, a little bit more creepy and crazy. So yeah, that's what I'm doing. Very cool. Well, I'm so glad you could be a guest. This was a lot of fun talking about this stuff and perfect poems thanks. for tonight. Uh, thanks, Ernest. Okay, so am I supposed to stick around or do I? <laughs> no, we're just hanging up. But well, uh, we'll talk to you later. Okay, great. Okay. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was Ernest Hilbert with uh, uh, Poems from Caligulan, um, his second-to-last book. Um, and uh, it's out here from Measure Press. You can find more of Ernest's work at Ernest Hilbert. That's e, or E-R-N-E-S-T-H-I-L-B-E-R-T dot com. ErnestHilbert.com. So check that out. And um, we're going to take a brief break, and we're going to go to open lines. We have the whole, any, uh, We're looking especially for uh, poems with a you know spooky Halloween type theme, I'll put up the uh, the info here. Um, so email your poem right now if you haven't yet to open mic at rattle dot com so I can show it on the screen like where we were showing Ernie's poems there, and uh, and then call in one way or the other. If you'd like to be on video, it's over Skype and just type rattle poetry into the search bar and on Skype and then say hello in the chat message. I'll see you, and that's how you get on the call list. I'll call you back when it's your turn. The other option is to do it by phone. The phone number is 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times and hang up. This is the only thing we use this line for, really, so I know that, I know it's people who want to be on the show. And um, I'll just call you back when the time is right, within the next hour or so. So uh, be by your phone. And when you do call in, uh, make sure you talk to me only through your phone and either mute your stream or shut it off completely because there's a delay. You have to have the poem in front of you that you're going to read yourself, even though I'm showing it on screen. Because of that delay, you won't be at the same spot in the poem as you are um, on the screen on uh, the video. So make sure you have that with you as well. And uh, we're going to go to open lines really quick. I'm going to st- stand up and stretch and get things organized, and I will be right back. And here's some uh, creepy music to about. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. I get up and stretch and uh, get up these uh, open line poems ready to go. We have a lot of people who are interested in sharing poems. People are calling in right now. That's excellent. So the prompt, of course, was to write a spooky poem this week for Halloween. And um, Megan and I both managed to come up with poems this week. First time in a while for me. I haven't been writing very much. Just too busy. But uh, I don't know. This, this, it was a fun afternoon writing a little poem here. 
And um, I will try to read it in the Ernest Hilbert way. Well, no, I'll just read it my own way. Never mind. Uh, This is uh, my spooky poem. And it goes right here like this. Say goodbye to Ernie. Okay, this is obviously you know how it happens, being here too. But I was on the new bridge up on 36 they put over the dry creek. Dry creek's always dry, but twice a year when it washes a car down into the desert. We'd climb the side bank every rainstorm, Carl and me, and watch boulders as big as buses tumbling through the chute. Remember that rock tumbler, Carl would say, and we'd talk rocks, the cat's eyes and quartz, the different grits of sand we'd add to our little steel drum with its constant churning. The box culvert, they call it, not a bridge, I guess, though they look about the same. Clean concrete blue in the night. Must have been 2 a.m., and I was out walking. Not a drop in me, just couldn't sleep. No moon, only the thousand stars like glowing dust thrown over some god's shoulder in the black fog that rises as the houses get scarce. Halfway across the bridge, that's where it happened. I didn't know exact what exactly, but I felt it. No sound but the wind through the pines. I looked behind me, nothing but new road, nothing on the road ahead. I leaned over the railing, nothing but rocks, and that's when I saw it was me. I was lit up like a spotlight. I put out my hand, and it was bright enough to read the lines on my palms. I stepped back in shock into the darkness and was dark again, then forward into the light. Where does it come from, the light? I scanned the ridgeline, the woods. It was like a helicopter had me in its bright beam, but the skies were clear. Just those stars, just the wind. I stretched my arm out into the darkness, back into the light. I jumped forward and waited, thinking the light might follow. It didn't. I hopped into the light, out of the light, over and over like a kid splashing into puddles of light. I laughed, then laughed at myself for how it must look, a grown man hopping into light and out of a light, laughing at 2 a.m. And the man laughed too. I hadn't seen him sitting at the end of the bridge, the box culvert. He was a shadow even in the shadow of the night, a silhouette against the darkness behind him. I couldn't see his face. I didn't know what he meant by laughing. Carl, is that you? I called out, but I knew it couldn't be Carl anymore. Without a word, the figure stood and moved forward with a sound of wet sand on pavement, like a stone sliding then tumbling faster and faster as it approached, until it was a stone, until it hit my foot. I bent to pick it up, and then the light went out. That is my spooky poem, Obviously, you know how it happens being here, too. And um, Megan has a poem, too. And this is Megan's spooky poem. This is Still. Still. Like a pond in a forest is the room in your house. Like a swan on still water is the window in your room. Like a whisper in the night is the face at your window. Like a spider in a jar is the scream in your throat. So that is Megan's spooky poem still. Um, you can vote on whose poem was creepier. And um, now let's go to the open lines and see if you can make the hair on my arm stand up. Um, let's talk to uh, first. Angela Gardner was the first person to ask. So let's call up Angela. Angela. 
Hey, Angela, how are you doing tonight? Good. I was just listening to Megan's poem. <laughs> so. Here, let me uh, let me fit you in here. So, uh, so how's it going? What do you have plans for Halloween? Anything interesting going on? Well, actually, something interesting happened yesterday because um, I was I also write short stories too, and um, my short story was selected for this Halloween night at. Um, the Museum of Art. And, oh, very cool. And um, and it was, I I got to read one of my um stories. So um, from the um, it's uh, we have like a literary um, organization here, and they select one of my stories, and I got to read it in an in person event, which oh, is, wow. and I'm I'm always like this, you know, me speaking here has actually helped me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it really helped me because I'm used to speaking and, and reading my stuff, but well, it was great. fun. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, so what do you have uh, that you want to share with us tonight? Which one? <sighs> That's a question. <laughs> <laughs> so we have, we have uh, Halloween Without Mass and The Lost Soul. Let me see how many people. I don't know if we have time for two. Let me see. Yeah, it's we probably really should short... just st- stick to one. We probably should. Okay. Well... The Lost Souls kind of newer. Um, maybe do, just do with that. Okay. Um, the the werewolf one was I submitted for poets respond, but I I kind of like uh, this one I just wrote, so we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. And, and anything you want to say about it before you jump in? No, it's just what it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, go ahead. I'll put it up for everybody. The Lost Soul There was a time when I didn't feel scared. I drove on the edge of the line, daring the car to swerve. I could be in the darkest, seediest of places without turning around to see who was walking behind me. That was before I saw the light, the one that goes out slowly and quietly slips away as if they were never in their body. The shrinking of their faces and feet cold lips in their death makeup, lowering their coffin in the grave, visiting a headstone with their rotting skin melting off their bones underneath the grass where you stand. I wonder if they are watching as I place a vase of flowers and cry about the silence. I told myself to stop focusing on the deadness, but the ghost of my aunt is in my mirror. I wave and she does too. Her gray hair is poking through mine, I tell her she needs to leave, but she squints her eyes and leans in to grab my hand. Lost, we cannot another mirror poem. (laughs) (laughs) I know when he said that, I was like, I just. Yeah. Is that crazy? <laughs> that is creepy. I I do not like that. I you know when I was when I was like twelve or thirteen, I would put like blankets over the mirrors and yeah, <laughs> I really did not like it. That that whole you know bloody Mary thing. Oh God, that that is like oh, yeah. my childhood trauma. <laughs> so thanks for re- I'm sorry. thanks for bringing it back. But that's okay. It's the time of year for it. Thanks, Angela. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks. Have a good night. Yep. You too. And happy thanks. Halloween. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Happy. <laughs> Okay, so um, yeah, that was another mirror poem by Angela Gartner, um, "The Lost Soul." Let's see. Um, oh, I think we. Uh, oh, there we go. So let's call up Caitlin Buxbaum. She uh, had some plans and they're canceled. So let's call up Caitlin and see what she had for us this week. 
Hold on. No problem, Caitlin. Let me. Uh, I think you sent me a link, right? So I. Yeah, I sent you one on here and um, over email. Oh, it's over email. <sighs> Let's see. Oh, there it is. Okay. So this. Uh, so what is it that you wanted to share? And how are you doing tonight? Oh man, busier than a one-armed paper hanger. Which <laughs> I was thinking about that phrase and that's a phrase. I realizing <laughs> that's you've never heard that. I've okay, never well, heard that. No. I'm gonna have to look it up and find the origin because I was wondering about that too. I was like, I'm not even sure what that is, but my parents used to say that all the time. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna read a short poem um, that was published in one of the free papers up here. Um, last summer it's about a spider it's not i didn't write it around halloween but i thought spiders are halloweeny so um oh the link i sent you did that go yeah. to the right page no it didn't do you know what page it's on it's on page 12 12 okay yeah i forgot you have to change when you click share you have to like click yeah. a different button to share okay, it from the I page got it. i got it here okay i might have cool. to zoom to zoom here we go okay we, we're good this issue Hooray. is interesting. I haven't I haven't used issue in a you know seen anything that's on issue in a while. Oh yeah, I like it because you know it does give you a little bit feel of like you're actually looking at a paper, but um, the zooming in and stuff is nice. But um, yeah, very nice. So, so is there anything you want to say about it, or do you want to just jump in? It's just kind of a silly poem, <laughs> um, and I I it's written in some kind of form but it might just be a b a b rhyme scheme <laughs> so um okay. nothing nothing too crazy this time but i thought it was appropriate so this is the spider that i didn't kill the spider that i didn't kill came skittering after me wary i watched it cross the sill wondering why i let it be my husband isn't buddhist but he tells me not to smite them those bugs the universe will miss he says though I don't quite believe him. So here the speeding spider stays, creeping around in the dark. It lurks in bookshelves, doorways, corners, waiting for its mark. Oh, why did I let you live to terrorize me so? Why such mercy did I give to you, my undeserving foe? Who knows now where you lie to frighten and dismay? But if I spy you with my eye, you just might die today. Oh, that's a fun one. That, that's a, a kid-appropriate poem, too, I think. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> for sure. Somebody asked about um, if Ernest writes any um, um, kid you know, horror-type um, poems. And uh, mm -hmm. that'd be a good one because we have the whole – we have that thing that, that, that plays out in our household very often because we don't want to oh, yeah. kill them, but, uh, but they, they want them killed at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so. I've actually gotten used to them since then. I let them exist as long as they're not near me, so – yeah, but um, I was going to just mention before I sign off, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if I said this last time, but if you recall, I met Jimmy Pappas on this Rattlecast, and I now am the editor of the journal for Poets Society of New Hampshire, which is something that he's a member of. So that's just a fun little fact. Um, the journal submissions closed today, so I've been busy um, getting ready for that, but very cool. Just yeah, well, congratulations on that. I would announce that. There's my good news. Yeah, yeah so, <laughs> so. Sense and Poems. Oh, well, they closed today. So next time, Sense and Poems to Kate. <laughs> yeah, and this was a members-only issue since uh, it was like a really fast turnaround. But mm -hmm. in the spring, yes, there in will be. In the spring, there you go. Well, thanks so much. Do you have more. any connection to Vermont? Are you... 
Well, it's New Hampshire, New Hampshire. but no, I've never even been there. <laughs> oh, really? um, it's just Jimmy, you know, got me into his organization and then they needed an editor for their journal. So I was like, well, I could do it. But <laughs> so I'm starting to understand some of uh, the woes that you have yeah. as an editor already. Well, cool. well, good luck with the, the process and uh, hope you find some great poems. Me too. Thanks. Okay. Hey, good night, Caitlin. <laughs> See ya. It was Caitlin Buxbaum with uh, The Spider That I Didn't Kill. And um, let's see. Let's go to um, Guy Chambers. Hey, Guy, how you doing today? Dr. Bell, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And the other funny thing yeah. is Caitlin had a spider poem, and now I see you have a spider poem, too. Yeah, I just listened to that. I said, oh, geez, this just kind of fits right in behind. Yeah, this poem here, actually, I've never really written any uh, Halloween poems, so this is near about my first one. And actually, I just came up with the two words one day at the Spidery Library. And so I started writing on it, and this is what I came up with. Very cool. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. I'll put it up on screen. Okay. Spidery Library. A witchery... Richery alley, surely gloomy. Where so? A spidery library. Blurry and eerie. Foggy and boggy. With many story stories. Alleyway. Snaky, shaky. Prowl the howl. Call and fall. Fall. Library echoes shadows below the gallows with leery boundaries. Ghost voices to the most screams from a dream. Girl, girls slime the floor with drool. Black cats scratching the mat. Bony skeletons creaky and moldy. Breathing over the shoulder. Books, slangy, tangy. Pages, loopy. Stories, freaky. The spidery library. Embroidery, thready with murky. Shady memories. Making you edgy. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Guy. That was Guy Chambers with Spidery Library. And what do you call that style, um, Guy, the, the wordplay that you do with the, the internal rhyme, you know, the pair of rhymes in each line? Yeah, yeah it's just, I don't know, I have done that before, like, you know, trying to get, you know, like, a whole bunch of just poems that rhyme together in one line and all that. Mm -hmm. I tried it a few times, and it comes out a little differently on you know, that, too, so sometimes it's harder to read, I find, sometimes. <laughs> I have one just about like each paragraph had rhymed with with the one word and all the way through, and it was so hard to read. It's got but uh, tongue tied a bit, but I don't know. I just seem to go on a few cells like this here, and just come out with all these words rhyme and just try to put it together and make a make a poem out of it. So, so it's it's my first Halloween one, so so it's not too bad, but it came out. Yeah, well, thanks, thanks for sharing that. It was a lot of fun. Okay, thanks a lot. Yep, have a good night. Okay, so um, we have a first-time um, caller, 
Uh, Dave Williams is here. He left a, a couple interesting comments on the um, show. He he suggests playing his audio. And um, let me find... Try to find it. There it is, Dave Williams. And... Um, Okay, so I think this is going to play, and these are uh, Dave Williams' poems coming up here. Here we go. This is uh, three Halloween sonnets, basically. Hello, I'm Dave Williams in Lincoln, Nebraska. I'm still looking to publish my first poem, but only since recently. I wrote mostly sonnets, so this seems like a place to go with a few of those. The first two are conventional Shakespearean format. The first one was written specifically for the Halloween prompt. Homing in on Halloween. While driving home from work one Halloween, a moonlit eve when it was well nigh dark, some costumed hoodlums jumped out with an egg and heaved it towards the windshield of my car. I was appalled to see it brusquely spatter right in my face. I pulled up to the curb, deciding devilishly to take the matter in my own hands in ways that might disturb young goblins who were just out trick-or-treating or snickering moms who followed in their wake. But no one would mistake the foul meaning of the revenge I planned to undertake. That ache they tossed was not just a mistake, but embryonic fear they'll never shake. The second one I will share is not specifically on the prompt, but just a spooky scene, my bedroom, after turning the light off. The room is dimly lit by digital alarm clock face, which casts a violet and creepy liminal shade overall, a darkness by a glimmering offset. The ceiling fan is doubled in dark shadow, and though it doesn't spin, it seems to move, it floats among half-curtained walls, faint inflow. The closet door slides still upon its groove. A lampshade lurks on the bedstead behind me, on which I prop my hand to rest my head. Cracked eyeballs, deep in crannies, seem to spy me as I gaze out from above my bedspread. While hanging there, my tired eyes appear, now to be looking inward at what's near. Last and least, here's one not on the prompt, but at least seasonal. It's like a sonnet, but all the lines are less than pentameter. Erasing green. A glowing day for one tree was seen from our backyard. The look I took was hurried. The leaves were falling hard. Tomorrow many branches will show up in their place, though there may be strands where color firmly waits for when the turn arrives to tumble through the sky, in a fresh surprise autumnally passing by, wisping open eyes, dropping as they fly. Excellent. So That's three, it for me. Yeah. Thanks for the listen. Yeah, thank you, Dave. That was uh, three short uh theme poems from uh, Dave Williams um, Erasing Green then we had uh, After Turning the Light Off and Homing In on Halloween thanks for sharing those Dave that was great sorry it took me a little while to get it set up it's been a little while since somebody sent um, audio like that and I kind of forgot how to do it 
Um, but uh, and let's call up. Um, let's call up Zachary Honeycutt. That's right. I know I said one poem each, but if they're short, we could do two. That's that's kind of the kind of the way we're trying to go. Hey Tim, how's it going, man? It's going great. Good to hear from you, Zach. I knew you'd be here for the Halloween show because you got the Halloween the Halloween vibe going with your poems. So, what do you have that you wanted to share? <laughs> well, I have two poems that I'd like to share, but if I have to pick one, yeah, these are on I'll the longer the side, of... so so pick one. Okay, uh, I think I'm going to do the Eye of My, a memoir of death. Okay, and uh. I wrote this when I was 17. I consider this kind of like classic Zachary Honeycutt. <laughs> I was going through this whole Edgar Allan Poe phase in my teen years where I was really obsessed with the cask of Amontillado and the telltale heart. And you can kind of see uh, glimmers of this in this poem. I actually got inspired. I read the back of one of my mom's Dean Koontz books about Frankenstein. Uh-huh. And that's what gave me the idea to write this cool poem. Interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to it. The Eye of My, A Memoir of Death. Go ahead. I have it ready. (laughs) The Eye of My, A Memoir of Death. Upon lulling to sleep one stormy night, a horrible wailing echoes through the house, sending shivers, sailing, sweeping up my legs, stirring, seeking to awaken sleeping fright. More or less, to caress across my sweaty limbs, the fear of what has been buried, a he by me, unfortunately, underneath the earth he swims. At a glance, I take my chance with hands clasped on the windowsill, tightly pressing, fear caressing, peering out against my will. What I see belongs to me, but what I created I must kill. Oh, he must hurt beneath the dirt, but I buried him against my will. Are we gods or just creations or reality-bound hallucinations? What is real and what is fake? Losing track of that was my mistake. To believe I could achieve giving life to dead. From the start within my heart, I knew these thoughts were fallacies within my head. For I gave life gladly, although life was not mine to give. And I took it sadly, for I knew it could not live. And so the he by me would not come to be, though other forces would observe what I did not foresee. For although I know all the unseen things of this world are too lightly mistaken, It is not by my power that he would reawaken. Perhaps unseen powers of heaven permitted unseen powers of air to conspire against me for the crime I did dare. And none of the lot would permit him to rot beneath his burial ground. For they clearly hated what I created. And once more, I hear a moaning sound. I hear a wail so sharp, so shrill. Now I know the killer will become the kill. And who will save me? For the he will engrave me. And I must lament that the one who gave him breath will meet by him an untimely death. Oh, woe is me! How can this be? 
Good fortune has left me, unfortunately. Silence is gone, no longer silently speaking. Replaced by the sound of laughing footsteps, the floorboards are creaking. The door is thrust open, making a hole in the wall. I myself am in terror at the sight of it all. My image, my likeness, is finally here to take my life, the life that I hold so dear. Upon lulling to sleep one stormy night, a horrible wailing reverberates beneath the dirt. Tis not the wailing of the monster, of the abomination now nestled snugly in my bed. Rather it is the wailing of my departed soul, beyond the grave, resoundingly dead. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much, Zach. That was uh, definitely channeling Edgar Allan Poe there. Um, you hear the rhythm. That was great. The Eye of Maya, Memoir of Death. Thanks for sharing that, Zach. Yeah, no problem. Nice to see you again, Tim. Yeah, yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, this is Zachary Honeycutt. And um, let's go to... Let's go to Carolyn Codd. Hey, Carolyn, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air if you wanted to share a poem. Okay. Um, let me see if I, is, you can hear me okay? Yep, yep, we hear you great. Um, and the poem I have up is Magic Moves. Is that what you yeah. wanted to share? Uh-huh. Yeah. Is there anything you want um, to say about it before you do? Yeah, I think I have to mute this other, okay. Okay. <laughs> now you can hear me all right? Yep, we hear you perfectly. So is there anything okay. you want to say about the poem before you read it? Yeah, um, just that I always associated Halloween with kind of magic things. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is called Magic Move, and it has to do with um, someone that I was separated from a long time ago. And then um, about 10 years ago, I learned that he had died. Um, but I had always kept his letters. Hmm. I still have them. So this is magic. It's more like a friendly ghost story than a spooky story. Oh, that's a good one, though. I like that. Okay, go ahead. Let's hear it. Okay. Magic Move. Preparing to move, I put you, your handwritten letters, in a box for safekeeping, put the box in an envelope, put the envelope in my trunk, locked it. I turned around three times and went out of the room. Now you're long gone, but you, you keep on happily appearing every so often, here, there, anywhere. This has been happening for some time, yet I'm still not sure who's the magic one, you or me. Could tweets of Twitter be so magical after 40 years? Oh, very interesting and sweet. Thanks for sharing that. It was Magic Moves by Carolyn Codd. Thanks, Carolyn. Okay, thank you. Yep, good night. Okay. And um, now let's, let's go to um, Nilema Kakanis. And then who else do we have online? We have Mike Bales. We have Patrice Wilson. Uh, Richard Westheimer. Um, that might be it. So, um, yeah, let's do So I think we can get to everybody. So um, stick around if you haven't called yet. One more time, just in case you uh, need to, to see the numbers if you're watching and thinking about calling in, feel free to do so. Uh, the number is 818-850-7727. Just let it ring hang a few times and hang up. Or uh, Skype me at Rattle Poetry and email your poem to openmic at rattle.com. I have some poems I can read here, too. So maybe I shouldn't tell more people to call in, um, but I don't know. Anyway, let's call up Nilema. 
Hi, uh, you're live on the air um, with Rattle. Would you like to share a poem? Hi, yeah. So I have this poem. It's called Even Vampires Must Slow Down in a Time of Plague. And it's an allegory poem. Yeah. Hi, can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah I can. Sorry, Halloween. sorry. I was trying to find the poem, um, but I have it now. So, um, oh, good, you have it. <laughs> yeah, it's because your email address okay. is different than your name, so it took a little bit, a little bit of sleuthing, sorry. but I found it no problem. <laughs> um, I should change that. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's like it's a ha- allegory basically, and mm-hmm. I'm still working on it. So, but I thought it would be fun to share. So here yeah. it is. Yeah, that's cool. I'm looking forward to hearing it. Even va- we haven't had a vampire yet, I don't think. No, I I haven't heard one yet. Okay. So, even vampires must slow down in a time of plague. Wear your masks, vampires, and leave the children alone. In a time of plague, even vampires must slow down. If you are a character, a being of magic's making, can you not then transform into something other than the undead taking? Lifeblood, existence purgatory a metaphor for without mirrors what you are really ominously reflectionless a colonizer in fiction fearsome theory a superhero like villain in reality your stolen iron vapor breath your story is old yet not so old you are perhaps exaggerated no cape this lifetime around You only tell of your sorrow. You never tell of your wrongs. Stay at home, vampire, and when you must leave, wear a mask to hide your teeth. The preyed upon have grown tired of your disingenuous pleas, of your hubris, of your rocket ship beliefs, about dry fluorescent desert planets and about the wastelands you have made. If only you had anything honest to say about creativity and society or even just beauty you are the only beauty that you see a cryptic being you are early to the gala you glide in with lies while we hide here and outside you are an expert at distance but when you come close all pay attention to the opulence of the game up there capes are for the wicked out of breath we are resting in eternal child's pose Perhaps not for long. No, not anymore. Slow down, vampire. You know what we think. There is nothing left here to eat or to drink. Oh, that was great. You know, it's true. No one ever (laughs) thinks of vampires during the pandemic. I've never heard one person (laughs) worrying about how they're they're making it by. (laughs) Yeah, they have to change their ways. So they have. (laughs) Well, thanks so much. That was a fun one. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Yep, you too. Happy Halloween. Yeah, same to you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you. Oop, I keep doing that. That was Nilema Karkanis. I saw James Lightford in the comments, but I don't see him here. Maybe I'll read his poem. Let me double check to make sure he doesn't isn't here to call in. There we go. So this is a James Lightford's poem. This is Welcome. Welcome. Has no one passed this way in years? Bolt from hinges, rusted solid, claw for remnants that portray some pretense of granite future, feature, on a stone wall long decayed, two curs, petrified, or concrete, 
on their haunches, grimace, stare beyond the rough winds and time. Hound's teeth, gnaw gnawed of bones but time, chained there. There's nothing sudden of this place, marooned atop aged, rusted poles leaning toward time's distant past. Twin centuries mar gloom's entranceway, and neither has a shadow cast. For decades each has slain askew on either side of gates wrought iron, paired that I pass through reluctantly. Within, what waits? It's not for fools to hesitate. Unhinged do gates of hell invite the lost to wander close until, under lanterns that cast no light, fear stands where hungry darkness spills. Uncertainty, doubt, plagues the mind. No footprints show where fools have been until fate's crooked welcome sign lured this poor ghoul. I stepped within, frights under brush, beyond gates' maw, must muffle moans of past victims. Night's underlings bear tooth and claw. Fear stalks a costumed hobgoblin whose ginger tap upon the door echoes off cobwebbed walls within till portal creaking opens wide as eyes and costume goblin size. For candy, risk what lurks inside. I hold my bag high for a treat as terror puddles at my feet. Oh, that was a good one. I love the rhymes and the rhythm there. Thanks for sharing that. That was James Langford with Welcome, a great Halloween trick-or-treating poem. I wonder, so John, let's see. So John Beaton has a poem here. And um, again, I'm going to see if I can play play the audio. It's a Halloween poem. We'll try it out. And hopefully I can be quicker this time because it's a little more fresh in how to do this. Yeah, here we go. So this is uh, going to be John Beaton's poem. He said it's already published. Um, it's a poem called My Friend Dave. And um, it was published in uh, Hypertext, which can be found at... Uh, there's a YouTube video. But I'm not going to play the YouTube video for the copyright type reason. But I will play, uh, I will play the poem and show it on the screen here. So this is My Friend Dave. This poem is called My Friend Dave. Well, I went for a walk last Halloween on the scariest night you've ever seen. And to prove to myself I was not afraid, I went to a place where the dead are laid. A graveyard. Then a voice from a grave called out to me, Hey, my name's Dave. Well, I turned to see what was going on, and before me stood the skeleton. He said, I'm glad of your company. It's lonely here in the cemetery, and the only time that the dead can leave their tiny coffins is on Hallow's Eve. So here I am, do you want to play? And with that, I turned and I ran away. But what was that sound ringing in my ear and growing louder and ever more near? Clickety, 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 clack. I'm following you, I'm behind your back. I'm going to give you a tickle, ha <laughs> ha, attack. Clickety, 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 clack. Well, very soon I was in the pickle. He caught up to me and was giving me a tickle. Ha ha ha, hoo 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 ha ha. Well, I could hardly talk, but I took my chance. Ha ha ha! I yelled, "Please stop, or I'll pee my pants!" 
Well, he let me go, so I said, all right, I'll play for a while. He said, out of sight, so played a tag and a blind man's buff. Then I heard someone coming, and I said, enough. Well, two little girls who looked quite cute, dressed up as witches with bags of loot like Snickers bars and jelly beans, came running round a corner being chased by teens who shouted at them, stop, give us your treats. And Dave yelled, hey, back off, dead beats. And they turned and froze and horrified. They took to their heels and they tried to hide. But no matter where they went to ground, they couldn't outrun that awful sound. Clickety, 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 clack. I'm following you and behind your back. I'm going to give you a tickle attack. Ha ha ha. Clickety, 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 clack. Well, he caught up to them and was giving them a tickle. Ah, he, hoo, 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 hoo. And very soon you could hear the trickle. As every last one of them peed their pants. It happened in a garden and they watered the plants. Well, they splooshed back home looking very upset. And the little witches asked them why their pants were so wet. But they said to the witches, we are sorry we were mean. And the little witches answered, have a happy Halloween. I said, Dave, you're brave. He said, you're nuts. I can't be courageous because I haven't got the guts. I said, anyway, I think you're great. Same time next year. Let's make it a date. So now, as you can see, we are very good friends. But that's not how the story ends. It's really, really scary. You should all go boo-hoo, cause it ends with Dave coming after you. Clickety, 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 clack. I'm following you, I'm behind your back. I'm gonna give you a tickle attack. <laughs> clickety, clickety. Clickety-clack! <laughs> well, that was very interesting. Uh, great, uh, almost a song there. That was uh, My Friend Dave by uh, John Beaton. Thanks so much for sharing that, John. Um, definitely interesting stuff we're getting tonight. Let's see. Well, oh, Kimmy, oh, Kimmy got left her phone number here. So this is uh, Kimmy Sugioka. And I will try to call Kimmy up and see if she would like to read a poem herself. I know we're going late on the show today, but it's a special show, and I want to make sure everybody gets in. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. Did you want to share your poem? Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this is a, this Kimmy Sugioka. Yeah, no problem. Um, so is there anything I want to say about it before you, you read it? Oh, just that um, I wrote it recently. I've been th- there have been a lot of deaths of, of poets um, in my realm. Um, yeah, I've noticed that too, actually. It's true. Yeah, and some of them I was close to, like Diane de Prima and QR Hand. And I don't know. It's been, yeah, so that's what I was thinking about when I was when I wrote the poem. Mm-hmm. Well, go ahead. I have it up ready. Just go ahead and read it whenever you are. Okay. Autumnal Labyrinth. Minotaurs gallop through holes in the universe. 
La Llorona haunts hemispheres of longing for those who are gone, for those who are suffering, for those whose loneliness imprisons them. It is time to speak to the sea and remember the dead, their joys and sorrows and regrets, to reignite the myth of innocence. The nuthatch at the feeder, the dove on the Buddha, the plover hunkered in a footprint, the storm that washes shores and pavements with radiant and regenerative rain. How many labyrinths must be traversed to dismember the phantoms of loss and regret and place a spool of light in Persephone's hand to convince the dead to wake the living? Oh, that was beautiful and touching, autumnal labyrinth. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you, Tim. I love listening to you. You're a very, you're a very lovely host. Oh, thanks. I, I really <laughs> appreciate that. But I'm so glad we could you could call in and share a poem for the first time. Hope you get to do it again sometime soon. Anytime, you're more than welcome. Okay. Thank you, Tim. Bye. Yep. Have a good night. Okay. And once again, that was uh, Autumnal Labyrinth by Kimmy Sugioka. And let's add Kimmy to our phone, her address, book really quick. So we know who it is next time uh, we might want to talk. And um, I think there's one more poem to share. So let's share this uh, Vicky Miko's Halloween poem, and this will close out the show. I do have to get going. It's getting pretty late. Um, he comes accounting at the murky down of midnight. And there's some wonderful photographs again, very creepy. Let me, uh, I'll show them first, and then we'll, we'll read the poem, and then you can see him again at the end. But this is Mickey, Vicky Miko's uh, poem here. And these are the, the photographs that she included. Um, the sort of a shadow figure and a lot of eerie. That's a rocking chair, but in a, in a weird kind of uh, creepy light. And uh, let's, let's read this poem here. He comes accounting at the murky dawn of mid er, murky. He comes accounting at the murky down of midnight. Manuela cannot sleep in her room above the buried light. She hears him with his wicker broom a sweeping, sweeping at the murky down of midnight. Oh, the tally man comes a-sweepin' outside her sullied room. Oh, he comes a-beatin', beatin' with his wicker broom. He whisks and scrapes the crackin' slabs into a moldering heap. Oh, the tally man comes a-sweepin', sweepin' from the gutters in the street. A stench of skin and kerosene, downwind, dry and stinkin', the tallyman's countin' in between, come dawn of her midnight trickin'. Slung upon his weary back, the tallyman shifts his gunny sack, full of mealy bone and fetid scab, hanks of hair and pearls of fat. Shifty winds nap against her window, smells of dusty rose. Oh, the tallyman hears Manuela weepin' in her room above the buried light. She waits till she is safe and sleepin' past the murky down of midnight. The tallyman leaves his gunny sack on the landing of the stair. Manuela wakes from her midnight nap, but sees there's no one there. Oh, the tallyman, the tallyman, comes a-rockin', his cock-eye loose and knockin'. Oh, his arms a-weary and weak, till his Manuel's safe asleep. Moonstones nestled in the bone-box, the carnies call. Oh, the tallyman comes in the murky yowl of midnight to sweep Manuela's room in the dim and rising light. 
He comes a-rockin' and a-sweepin' with his wicker broom. On the tip of the crescent moon, he hooks his rancid gunny sack. Oh, she's a-comin', comin' soon to ease his weary back. And that is a wonderful poem by Vicky Miko. Great way to end this show. Thanks so much for sharing that. And those, those are creepy photographs. If you're only watching on the, or only listening on a podcast version, come check out those photographs by Vicky. Uh, you won't be disappointed. So that is the show for tonight. Thanks everybody for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I just love, I don't, what I really love, honestly, is I, I, I try to model the show a little bit after the Art Bell shows. I love those open lines that he used to do. I used to work a lot of midnight shifts and the creepy stuff would come out. And um, it's just wonderful to hear these poems. So I'm so glad you could share them with us today. Now, the next guest on the Rattlecast um, is going to be, I don't have a Saiku, I should, I should tell you. Because it's Saturday and Saikus are for Sunday, so I don't have a Saiku. But um, the next guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Clemence Hurd. Um, Clem's uh, the author of uh, Tragic City. We published uh, his wonderful long poem about the uh, Tulsa massacre in the summer issue. Uh, this is his first book, Tragic City. We also published him several times in Poets Respond. And everything, I, I, think, I think he's one of the only poets. We've published everything he's ever sent us, I, I believe. I mean, he's just a wonderful poet, and these are just great poems. Um, Tragic City is his new book. That's going to be Rattlecast number 117. And the prompt for this week, which I should have said first, uh, the prompt is going to be... Um, this was a lot of fun last time, so let's do another random Street View poem. RandomStreetView.com is a site that randomly generates photographs of streets all over the world. Find a photo that speaks to you and write a poem about it. That's our first repeat, but I did. I think this was my, might be my favorite prompt. And it's funny that Megan picked this to uh, repeat again because it really it was my favorite prompt, I think. So um, if you're newer to the show, we did this maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, but RandomStreetView.com is a great place for... Uh, poets to go for inspiration a little kind of off-kilter ekphrastic poetry going on you really get a random street view every time you click you know click go on there so check that out and write a poem about something that you find inspiring based on your random street view and that's going to be the um, uh, prop for this week you know next week and the next week's episode is going to be with Clement Surd at the regular time, Sunday, November 7th, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Rattlecast number 117. Hope to see you there. Hope you have a happy Halloween and uh, a great week. In the meantime, talk to you soon. Good night.